Well, Sanji says somewhere that um, satsang is given every day, but nothing new is talked about. And that's sort of true. Um, at another place he says that there are only three things that are ever talked about in satsang. Satnam, Satguru, and Satsang. And uh, that's also very true. Hey, thank you so much. Um, so I will not say anything new tonight on the one hand, and on the other hand, what I have to say will be in the nature of discussing Satnam, Satguru, and Satsang. This is, I want to read a few paragraphs, not a whole lot, from a talk that Master Kripal Singh gave again in 1964, in January 1964. Um, he says, this talk is called Out of the Madness of Love. It has also been published, uh, or it's on the tape under the title, Ocean of Intoxication. He says, so I wish each one of you to be practical. Do not try to reform others. Reform your own self. When you are reformed, all the world will be reformed. If anybody hates you, love him. After a while, he will come around. If anyone lowers himself, it affects him the most. If anyone has done anything wrong to you, and you also stoop to harm him, you do more harm to yourself first. This is what my master once wrote to me. Many kinds of people come to the satsangs. Some come only to criticize, others come out of devotion. He said, if a bad man does not leave off his bad habits, why should a good man leave off his good habits? It is not good if a man thinks that way, that is, returning in kind whatever he receives. If you sense any evil, return it with love. That is all you have to do. That will give you peace first and then others. When you hate anybody, perhaps not outwardly, but at heart, it reacts in the heart of the other. So we should have air-conditioned hearts into which no hate should penetrate. That is all I can say. Once it so happened in the life of Buddha that some man came to him and began calling him names very angrily. He remained until it grew dark. And when he was going to leave, Lord Buddha told him, Look here, friend, hear me first. I ask you one question. If anybody brings a present to give somebody and he does not accept it, with whom does it remain? Of course, with the one who has brought it. So, dear friend, the present that you have brought, I do not accept. And then one other story, a little later in the talk, Master says, 
Our master used to tell a story in which some sculptors or portrait painters who were foreigners came to China to show their skills. The king agreed to give them a hall in which to do whatever painting they liked. Some Chinese painters also wanted to have an opportunity to show their skills. The king said, all right, divide the hall by a curtain. It was a big hall. One wall was given to the foreigners and the other to their own countrymen. They began to work on the walls. After some time, the painting was ready. The foreigners went to the king and told him, our painting is ready. Would you kindly come and visit it? The king went there and saw that the painting was very beautiful. He was amazed at how lovely it was. As he was coming out, the Chinese painters also said, would you kindly have a look at ours? All right. When the curtain was taken off, to the amazement of the king, the very same painting that was on the other wall was also on this one. It was exactly there and still clearer than the other one because in the original one done by hand, little imperfect spots did show up here and there, but in the reflection, they were not there. He was amazed and said, what have you been doing? When two men are in a competition, they won't let others see what they are doing. What did you do? We have done nothing, sir, they answered. We have done no labor. We were simply rubbing the walls so much from day to day that it now reflects. That's all we have done. So it is the love that reflects. That's the rubbing that reflects the master within you, which is I, not now I, but Christ in me. That is devotion. There we are wanting. We may have love. I tell you honestly, love knows no burdens. Love beautifies everything. And love and all things shall be added unto you. But devotion is greater, and surrender greater still. That love is love, where there is devotion and surrender. Where there is no devotion and surrender, there is no love. By devotion and surrender, you lose your ego. You reflect the same as he is in you. You become he himself without any effort. This is the highest of all. Hafiz said the same thing as St. Paul. Strangely enough, I have forgotten my body, whether I or my master is here. These are the words. By name I am called Hafiz, but I am he and he me. This is what is called a gurumukh in the terminology of the masters. A gurumukh is one who becomes a mouthpiece of the guru. That is God's gift. That becomes the fate of those who have devotion and surrender. If we correctly grasp what the masters of all ages 
including the Lord Jesus, are teaching us, we can see that the story of the rubbing, okay, epitomizes very important part of the teaching. The problem is not that we have to struggle and work to add things. The problem is rather that we have allowed too many things to get in the way and we have to get rid of them. By removing those things which prevent the reflection from taking place, we are doing what is in our own best interest. That is the things that the masters ask of us, the way of living that they outline and all like that, this is what constitutes the rubbing. The time we spend in meditation, the time we spend in self-introspection, and all of the times that we choose not to do those things which get in the way and prevent the reflection from shining forth. After all, in the very first chapter of the Bible, it says very specifically that human beings are made in God's image. In the image of God, made he him, male and female, made he them. We are made in his image, and that should be apparent. This is why the things we were saying last night and the night before about the birthright to become God and about uh, um, being perfect even as our Father is perfect, these things are not fantasies because of our very nature. We are made in God's image. And because we are made in God's image, we can reflect Him if we work at getting those things out of the way that prevent that from showing forth. Now, the three things that matter, okay, the satnam, the satguru, and the satsang, is the, the summing up of the way in which the world is made. Okay? The world including us, which is the most important part of the world to us, of course. Satnam is God's real name, and it means, among other things, the sound current. It is the power of God that loves us and that creates the universe and that figures as the way back to him. It is both the way down and the way back. This is the meaning of Jacob's ladder. Okay, not really a ladder, by the way. <coughs> a staircase. A stairway is a better way to translate that. In Genesis 28:12, when Jacob has his dream, he sees a ladder in which angels are coming down and going up. Okay? This refers to the agency through which the love of God descends into the created universe and also through which those who are affected by, touched by the love of God can climb their way back. Hmm? Jesus later referred to it in the first chapter of John when he speaks of that um, you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. 
okay? The living master is the personification of that stairway, but the stairway is the ultimate fact. The reason the master is important to us is because through him we can climb up the stairs. <coughs> he makes the sound current, the satnam, is present in everybody, but people don't know it, therefore its worth is of dubious value until we meet the satnam personified outward as the Satguru or the real master who allows us or shows us how to take advantage of that which we already have so that we can also go back to our father. And of course when that happens the connection is established and this is what the word satsang actually means by the way, a real connection. Okay. Sometimes it's translated association with truth, which is also very valid. But um, in, when it's used in this way, it's talking about the real connection. Okay? The Satnam and the Satguru are important. But until we become connected with them, they don't do us very much good. It's that connection that counts. And through that connection, we become able to use the Satguru in order to take advantage of the Satnam. And this is the way the universe is set up. Now, we can bungle that connection. Um, it's often suggested that perhaps that connection is bungled more often than not. That's all right. As we were saying the last couple of nights, this is the path of the million chances and if we don't take a chance in the first place and risk failure we don't gain much right? anything real requires that we take risk and anything real has carries with it the possibility of failure but in this path failure is never permanent it really does function as education and it is the way in which we can learn Sanchi tells a story, Master Kripal also told this story, and Baba Sawan Singh also told this story, of Ravidas and the washerman's daughter, which illustrates this maybe better than any other story. Okay? He tells about King Pipa, who was king of a great city, and he was also a seeker after God. And he asked who was a master that he could go to. And people told him, his advisors, well, Kabir Sahib has left the body. So who is left is Ravidas. And Ravidas lives right here in this city with you. But there's only one problem, but it's a big one. He is a cobbler. Now, he, this meant that he was a cobbler by caste, all right, a shudra a low caste man and the king of course was a kshatriya and a very high caste man and it was unthinkable for a king to humble himself before a cobbler in order to uh, get spiritual truth from him so king pipa thought well 
I can do it. If I work it right, no one needs to know. So he arranged to have a big fair just across the river. And he made it so attractive that everyone in the city went. Only he was left behind. And after everyone had gone out and was at the fair, he made his way to Ravidas's hut. And there Ravidas was working. He was mending shoes. He was the living master of the universe, but he was also working mending shoes. So he came in and he told Ravidas who he was and what he wanted. And Ravidas handed him a cup and told him to drink. And um, King Pipa picked up the cup and started to drink. And then he thought, what is this? And instantly he began to doubt. Thought, he's a cobbler. This is some cobbler stuff, leather juice of some sort that he's trying to, to contaminate me with. What is this? I can't drink this. And began to gag, thinking about it. So he was wearing a shirt with big wide sleeves. And he thought very cleverly, he uh, began pouring the drink down the sleeves so that it would uh, seem as though he was drinking it slowly. And the sleeves were of such material that the the stuff, most of it, did not pour down and drip out, but it absorbed into the material as it went along. So that by the end, all the contents of that cup were in his sleeve. So then he put the thing down, he thanked Ravidas, and he left his shop thinking, congratulating himself that he had made a great escape. He had saved himself from terrible fate. He went back to the palace, he took off his shirt, and he sent it to his washerman. Now the washerman was very busy, so he gave it to his daughter, who was a teenager, and um, was uh, learning the washerman's trade. She also, of course, was also very low caste. So she followed the usual <coughs> practice of, of sucking the stuff out of the clothes. Only she was not old enough to fully understand that you didn't necessarily swallow what you sucked out, you spit it out. She was inexperienced and she swallowed it. And as a consequence, she became a master. And because what Ravidas had offered um, King Pipa was a very special gift of grace which required that he risked a great deal in order to get it. And he didn't do that, but the washerman's daughter innocently did. So she swallowed the nectar of Sajkan that was meant for King Pipa, and she in turn got that which was intended for him. She became a master. And word got out that the washerman's daughter had become something quite extraordinary and people began coming to her, wanting her darshan and wanting her to uh, bless them and so forth. And King Pipa heard about this and he thought, well, I went to see a cobbler. Um, what have I got to lose? I will, I'll go see the washerman's daughter. And he went there and when he got there, she stood up to greet him respectfully 
And he said, daughter, I did not come as your king. You don't need to greet me by standing up. I came as a seeker after truth. Please tell me what your secret is. And she said, king, I didn't stand up because you were a king. I stood up because whatever the secret is, it was in your shirt. And at that point, King Pipa suddenly, everything turned around and he saw what he had done and what he had thrown away. And repentantly and in great haste, he made his way this time with everyone in the city to the hut of Ravidas. And he went in and begged his full pardon. And he asked him for another chance. And Ravidas said, well, you can have another chance. You can't have what I gave you in that cup. That opportunity only came once. That was the nectar of Sajkand, and the washerman's daughter got that. But I will initiate you, and I will give you Nam, and you can have it. You'll just have to work hard, that's all. So he took initiation, and it is said that King Pipa became a master too. Not right away. He worked hard. He put in time for meditation, and he uh, was an excellent king and he became a master. And several of his hymns are also included in the Guru Granth Sahib. And uh, he is well remembered in India. But it wasn't the way that it could have been. Now, when Sanchi tells this story, he identifies himself with the washerman's daughter. That is that he had, through grace only, been given something that you could say from some points of view maybe was intended for somebody else. Now that's for him to say. I, I do not, my knowledge of Sanchi's life, I do not see really how that fits with my understanding of it. But he knows best as to his own life and what happened in it and like that. And if that's the way that he identifies himself, I find it very moving, and um, it makes me love him um, a great deal even more, thinking of him as the washerman's daughter. But from our point of view, we can say that there are lots of points along the way. Usually we don't recognize, just as King Pipa did not recognize that the cup that he was being offered contained the nectar from Sajkand. He was under the impression that it was something else. Usually when the master offers us a cup like that, we don't think that what it is he is offering us, and we reject it. <coughs> Well, there are levels and levels of this, of course. Um, there was a, a dear sister of ours who was having problems with her marriage. And she went to India several years ago and talked to the master about it. And he said, I know that it seems to you that I am giving you a cup of poison. But if you drink it, you will find that it is really nectar. And she did. And she found that. 
And she came home and, uh, and talked about that at satsang. And it was, um, it had a great effect on many people because it was very obviously what had happened. It's often like that, but usually we don't have any outside control. That is, we don't know how to define what happened. In the case of King Pipa, if the washerman's daughter had not swallowed the nectar, he would never have known what he had rejected. He would have assumed that Ravi Das was nothing, just a cobbler person, and not worthy of him to go to. He would have thought that he made a mistake going to him, and he would have taken some other course which would not have resulted, presumably, in his being a master. Because that that external control was there, control in the sense, the scientific sense of, of a controlled experiment in a laboratory, um, he was able to see that this was an objective thing and that he had made an error. Often we are not able to see that. But when Master Kripal wrote me many years ago, please know it for certain that everything that comes to your account is in your best spiritual interest. Um, this is what he was talking about, I think. I am offering you cup after cup after cup. Every time there's something comes along that you bridle at, okay, you do not want to take, you jump back, you think is not for me, it's going to contaminate me, it's going to poison me, like that, examine more closely. Because everything that comes to your account is in your best spiritual interest. Which means, I mean, after all, if we grasp this, okay, and I do not, by the way, I often quote Master writing me that. He wrote me that close to 30 years ago now. Okay? And I do not say that I am any better at understanding this right off the bat than I was then. Right? It's hard to learn this. And we have our own assumptions and preconceptions that we carry with us. And it is very difficult to have a sense of the universe as our questing place, all right? Like the knights who are after the Holy Grail, which is something that I've been doing a lot of studying on lately because I teach a course which this plays a large part. And right? um, when the knights were after the Grail, everything that happened to them was of significance. And they knew it. They knew it. And they would respond to it sometimes wisely, sometimes uh, not wisely, and which later some of them found the grail and some did not. But the ones that did find it never lost the sense of everything that is happening has got a dimension which is more than it appears to the eye. So when we realize that this is life is really a quest for the grail after all, the grail is what is waiting for us in such kind, and the things that happen to us are the, if you are familiar with the grail legends, they are the, uh, the mysterious castles and the fisher king and the knights at the crossroads who won't let us by and so forth. 
all of those things, each one of them, the dealing of which had an effect not only physically, in fact, not maybe necessarily even physically at all, but spiritually on the part of the knight who dealt with it. And so it is with us. Okay? We are given things, they're in our best spiritual interest in the sense that if we take them in that spirit, we will respond to them from the point of view of maximum possible growth. And that is why they are sent to us. It's not, the Master doesn't give us these things, but the point is that when he initiates us and takes the string of our karma over from the negative power, it's like the negative power hands him the strings of our karma when he initiates us, okay? And from that point on, the same things that were our karma anyway become not just that which has to happen to us because it's decreed because of our past actions, but it becomes that through which we can grow. It's like the master adds the dimension of conscious growth to what was up till then we could, we could understand it as mechanically happening. So when the master takes over, this is what is meant by the master taking over the strings of our karma. And uh, the things happen to us, most of them we fail, okay? But some of them we don't. The ones that we fail have their own value, and the ones that we don't have much more. And by little by little, learning that everything that comes to our account really is in our best spiritual interest, little this is part of the rubbing that we do in order to reflect the image of God that is within us that we basically are that we are created in. So this is what the Master is, is offering us and showing us that this is the true way of looking at the universe. You know, to a great extent, the rubbing also consists of seeing from the Master's point of view. This is something that um, has struck me for a long time is a basic thing that happens. We look from our point of view and it's the point of view of someone at the bottom of the pit. Okay, We are caught in our karma. We can't see up over the edge of the pit. What happens to us happens. It doesn't seem to have any rhyme or reason. But the master is looking from the point of view of God. This is part of his mastership is his ability to do that. So he looks down from the point of view of God and he sees us not as wretched personalities, selfish, afraid, ridden with desire, all of those things that we can see ourselves. No, he doesn't see us like that at all. He sees us as glorious reflections of God, temporarily fogged up, okay? So it begins to wipe away the fog, the rubbing that I mentioned earlier. And uh, the more we can see from his point of view, the more we can enthusiastically participate in the process. Now, 
There is a story in the Bible that many people don't understand or had trouble with, and, and I never understood it either. But I had met one day a rabbi of the Hasidic Jewish tradition, which does have a tradition of esoteric Kabbalistic Judaism, which is the same, I mean, if you go back far enough, it is the same point of view from which Jesus taught. Esoteric Judaism is really what the New Testament is expressing, although it is messed up by later accretions in many cases, people who didn't understand. So this rabbi explained to me that the story is where Moses asks God to show him himself God agrees, but he will only show him his backside. Okay? So Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he backs up into a little crevice, and God parades, processes back and forth in front of him. Only, only Moses can only see him from the back. And this is the vision. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, it says, God says that Moses sees me face to face. So there's more than one tradition here. But this story is uh, indicative of something. And the rabbi explained to me that in the esoteric Jewish tradition, what this means is that when Moses stood behind God and saw him from the back, he was given the opportunity to look over God's shoulder and see the universe from the point of view of God. And this is what mastership basically is, right? Moses was made a master at this point through the grace of God. And he saw the way God sees. And this is what also the master is offering us. These cups that we are given enable us to shift our angle of vision rapidly. The, the long, slow process of meditating and uh, doing our best from our point of view, the rubbing process, okay, these enable us to change our angle of vision slowly. But if we can grasp each thing that comes to us and recognize that it is in our best spiritual interests, not necessarily on its own terms, but try to look at it, whatever it is, from the point of view of the master, how he would see it, this can be a big help. And it isn't easy. And there's also, we can misread things. There's lots of scope for error. We don't need ever to allow other people to push us around. I mean, in situations where people mistreat us and abuse us and bully us and so forth, um, for any, on any grounds, we, we are not required to accept that. Accept is to understand how to deal with it. When um, Sanji was at Sant Pani Ashram in 1984, he, did, he had a press conference was set up. Okay, there were a lot of reporters from uh, local papers who wanted to interview him. And he agreed as long as it was their idea. He, he told me he was not interested in our getting them to come. But if they wanted to come of their own self, then he would meet with them. 
So three different reporters came and there was, they didn't ask particularly interesting questions and like that. And they left, they all published accounts. But the day, a day later, a reporter for United Press International who had missed out the day before came and wanted to talk to him and he agreed and she came in and she asked really excellent questions. That interview was published in the magazine also. And she said, among other things, do, do you teach that satsangis should submit to everything that happens to them or how do you deal with bad situations? And Sanji said that the duty of a satsangi is to never be afraid himself and never to make others afraid. He is not to intimidate others and he is not to allow anyone to intimidate him. So when I say that we accept what comes to us as um, in our best spiritual interest, sometimes that means dealing with it from this point of view too, that we don't allow ourselves to be squashed and mashed up um, or chewed into little pieces, that we have an, part of the expression of God within us is to not allow others to treat us as less than that. So that, um, and learning how to do that is also a kind of, of growing, okay? We do it through love, we don't use we don't give up our good habits just because the bad guys don't give up their bad habits. Um, but we still do it. And um, there is the story that's told in this connection of a cobra in India who was a big, huge snake and he terrorized a village and a master came by one day and saw what was going on and he rebuked the snake. He said, what are you doing? Do, do you really want this kind of karma? Do you not understand that, um, that when you create this much terror into people that you are going to have to experience it all someday like that? He talked to him like that. And the cobra was very much, he repented. He felt terrible. And he said, I have, I have done badly and I, I repent. So the master went away, and two or three years later he came back and he couldn't find the cobra. He hunted for him all over. Finally, the cobra crawled out of his hole and his, his back was broken. He was in terrible shape. He was barely alive. And the master asked him what happened. And he said, well, as soon as it became obvious that I was no longer a danger, all the village boys decided to take revenge on me for everything that I had done before. And they began throwing stones at me and beating me with sticks. They lost all fear of me. Now if I have to stay in my hole, if I come out, I don't dare. And the master looked at him very compassionately and he said, well, I never told you not to hiss. Right? So it's not necessary to, um, not, we don't need to let people walk all over us. That's the point. We can be, that snake could have been nonviolent without everyone realizing necessarily that he was nonviolent. 
anyway, there's lots of these things are often tricky. Um, we do our best. We make mistakes here. We miss the point there. We stumble at this time. We trip and fall at this point. And Master loves us anyway, right? He loves us anyway. It's a great, great error to think that any failure that we do can make the Master not love us. You know, he continues to love us no matter what. The knowledge of that should make it possible for us to keep going. I'll tell you a story that I don't fully understand this story, all its implications, and I know some of you have probably heard me tell it before. As I said in the beginning, nothing new is ever talked about. But I think it's symbolic of the Master and his giving. Right? And what he gives to us, we don't always understand. In 1963, actually it was the first few days of January 64, Master Kripal Singh was in Miami. And Judith and I had been following from Santa Barbara on. We had been following him on the tour. And we had had our ups and downs. I had run away for a few days and then had come back, a major thing. And uh, we had our children with us and uh, it was clear that we were eking out a bare existence, right? And so um, I was standing on the lawn at the house where Master was staying, and he came out. And he came over to me, and he had the funniest expression on his face. And he said, uh, he said, I was wondering if maybe you were in financial difficulties. Then I saw that he had his wallet. He had a wallet in his hand, and he was opening it up, and he was going to take out some money to give to me. And I responded instantly by jumping back, okay? I, at the time, it did not occur to me that this was a, um, uh, a, a parable of, of jumping back from Master's grace that's being given in meditation. I thought, I can't take this from him. This is not, I don't want money from him. I should give money to him. I'm the disciple and he's the master. I thought like this, so I, I said, no, 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 master. No, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine. I don't want anything, no, like that. And he looked at me with the strangest smile and he put his wallet back in the, his pocket and he said, didn't say anything, actually he walked away. And I thought about it, I thought about it. And uh, I went home, we went home. He actually brought up money again um, before we left him in, in a joint interview that Judith and I had in Washington and expressed sorrow as to how much money we had spent by following him, but he didn't offer to give any more at that point. And we went home and I had lost my job before we started following him. If I hadn't, of course, we, there wouldn't have been any question of following him. And um, I couldn't get one. We had used, we used all our money up on the tour. And so the next few months, the, the winter of 64, January, February, March, were very difficult for us. And uh, very little money. 
and I couldn't get work. Finally, I did get a job, and things got better. That summer, uh, we some of the one of the guests who came to the ashram was a lady from Toronto, in Canada, who was a pretty good friend of ours, and I mentioned to her that incident. I told her about it, and up to this point, it had never occurred to me that I had done anything wrong. And she looked at me and she said, why wouldn't you take it? She said, you take everything else from him. If he wants to give you something, why shouldn't you take it? That's what the Master does. He gives. We take. And that was like a revolution in my thought pattern. And I, I said, huh. And I thought about it and I decided that if the Master wanted to give me anything ever again, that I would take it and uh, insofar as I could recognize what was happening. So uh, a few years later in India, actually it was uh, March 72, it was eight years later, um, uh, Judith and I were present. We were in Patankot, which is up on the Pakistan border in the Punjab. Master had taken us there and it was a very powerful trip for us. Many things happened and, and I got very, very sick by the end. Um, but this, the incident that I'm going to tell now happened before I got deathly ill. Anyway, Master um, uh, had, was, had called us in, kind of a farewell thing, and uh, he asked me out of the blue if I wanted any money. And I instantly remembered that previous occasion. And I said, whatever you want to give me, Master, I will take. I knew, I knew the right, right words by this time, right? So he, he, without a word, he pulled out this big like, chest that he had. It was a, a kind of a money box, and he put it up on a little table. We were sitting on the floor. He was also sitting on the floor. And he put it on the table in front of him, a little a small table, and he opened it up, and it was full of American money. And uh, and he said, well, how much do you want? And I said, it's up to you, Master. Whatever you want to give me, I'll take it. Either if you don't want to give me anything, that's fine too. And he very slowly counted out maybe 10 20 $30. And he said, uh, is that enough? I said, uh, Master, it's up to you. Whatever, Whatever you want. And he counted out, say, 30 or 40 more, very slowly. This was all done with very great deliberation. He said, is that enough? I said, Master, whatever you want to give me. <laughs> and he counted out 30, 40 more. And he said, how about that? I said, it's up to you, Master. <laughs> whatever you want. And he... <laughs> He counted out another 30 or 40. Now we were up over $100. And this was, of course, 20 years ago when, when it was worth a good deal more than it is now. And I was getting a little, I didn't know what was going on. And I, I really, uh, but I only clung to that that, that, I, that it was up to him to give and me to take. And I didn't go further than that. So uh, finally he said, I think that's enough. And I said, all right, Master, thank you very much. I, I, I'm happy with whatever you've given me. And I took the money and we went home. Now, I have, there's no sequel to it. I mean, I, don't, I can't say that we got rich or anything happened as a result of that. But I think that he was teaching me something 
that I think that Mary McDear had been right, that I had um, made a huge mistake in not accepting from him in Miami, that it was my ignorance that led me to do that, and that he was teaching me an enormous lesson, which he used to do a lot. Uh, we don't, you know, Master Kripal and Sanchi both have tremendous senses of humor. It's not always obvious through language barriers and things like that. But the master, many things strike him as very funny. Uh, things that seem to us of the utmost seriousness may well strike him as really quite funny. And uh, I think this struck him as very funny. I, I think he was playing a, a kind of a cosmic joke on us, although not, it was good for us. I mean, it was a sweet joke and I, and I appreciated it. I, I mean, needless to say, I did not want the money particularly from him, but I did feel right. If he was giving it, then we should take it. So the master is the giver, and we don't always know. And if we get into the habit of accepting what he gives, um, after all, that's a part of whatever comes to our account too, if he wants to give us something direct. We should. This is, of course, um, the point. The things he gives us in a sort of a, a uh, systematized, material kind of way, like the like Prashad, for example. Um, when I was in India in 1969, an earlier trip with Master Kripal Singh, um, I was with a, a fellow who um, was a, a health food guy which is not to say that, that I am not, but uh, he was really kind of fanatical. And he really didn't want to eat any sugar or anything like that. And so the master offered us, we were, he and I were riding in master's car with him. And master came out at one place. He had taken us on tour with him. And master came out at one place and he had prashad in his hands. It was a sugar candy very sweet kind of candy. And he offered um, some to my friend, and he refused it. And I was appalled, I was shocked, you know. And no thanks, Master, big smile. And of course, he did not know, I mean, he knew about nature foods, but he did not know about Prashad. One, one kind of over, over drowns out the other. Anyway, I was very eager, and I was very superior to this guy in my mind. So I know what to do. So I had my hands kept out. We were in the car, and the master gave me three candies, and I lunged for them. I was so eager to get them that uh, one of them fell down behind the seat of the car, and I could never get it. And I, I had two of them which I ate very happily, but that third one was lost. And um, I felt that there was a lesson in that too, that we get what we're supposed to get. And um, if we're too eager, and it's you know like clutching, I was doing exactly what Master calls clutching when it's in meditation. I was lunging out to get that which he wanted to give, and in so doing, knocked it out of my hand. Um, Anyway, the point of prashad is, again, uh, it enables us to share 
um, in the master's perspective a little bit. It has there, there's many points to Prashad really, and we don't have to understand what all the point is if he wants to give it. Um, it's our pleasure to take it. But um, the bhajans in particular, okay, many people wonder what is what is the point of the bhajans sometimes. Uh, uh, many people just love them and uh, love to sing them. And the master has explained quite a bit actually that when he writes the bhajans and we sing them, he is allowing us to participate in his angle of vision. And when we sing them in the actual words that he wrote them in, this is even more so. It becomes a very strong participation. And if we can see it that way, we can gain a great deal from, I think we gain a great deal from singing them even if we don't see it that way, I think. Because, but if we do see it that way, we can be more actively involved in that. So many things that the Master does allows us to look over his shoulder. When we sing in his words about his attitude toward this and that thing, maybe his attitude as a disciple usually is, which is not usually our attitude because we are not the kind of disciple that he was normally, um, although he would like to be. Um, or sometimes he writes from the point of view of the master too. In either case, we are able to participate in his angle of vision in the same way that Moses was allowed to participate in God's by looking over his shoulder. So this is something that the master does. I think that is a big, huge thing and that makes things very helpful for us. So, I don't know if these words have been helpful or not, but Judith and I have very much enjoyed our stay here. This has been a very pleasant place, um, full of very beautiful and very loving people whom we have been very glad to meet, sometimes for the first time, sometimes after a number of years, and um, we are definitely the gainers. So we both thank you very much for your invitation and um, appreciate very much your love and your care for us. And I hope we remember who it is that gives us everything, basically, and try to remember to look behind the mask and see the real doer who is the real giver, the one who loves us, who works through the body of the Master and who also works through all the circumstances in our life. And if we can remember that, it can be very helpful. I, I thank you all for your patient hearing, not only today but also um, the last two nights also. We're going to have Paul's uh, 